Yeah, it was good. It was a great. We're, we're going to do more of those someday in the future. If I ever graduate and I have time, we're going to do them. Yeah, I might. <laughs> Forever. So there's a there's a famous experiment that was done years ago in which um, there were people who were asked to test other people and. They were told that they asked questions. The, the people they were testing were on another in another room, so they never really got to see them. And in this test, they, if they got the answers wrong, they were to shock them. And if they kept getting the same answer wrong, they could shock them more, and then they could shock them more if they got the answer wrong. Now there was no shocking going on. It was this was all an experiment, uh, but. The people who were on the other side of the curtain uh, were actors who, when they got shocked, would yell out as if they did. Anyway, this uh, you can look this out. I should have put it up for you because there's, I think there's video of this, and it's quite, it's quite amazing, a little hilarious actually as well. But for some people, not all. Some people stopped. They they wouldn't do it anymore. For some people. They kept going and going and going, and these were not evil people, but they felt themselves become cruel. They became cruel when, you know, there's a, there's a guy in a white coat who's saying, you have to do this, and they're like, you know, the, the guy in the white coat is saying, you need to shock them. And rather than stand up for what's right, they say, well... He's a guy in a white coat telling me what to do, so I'm going to do it. And um, and so what made me think of that is, you know, if you have power more than those around you, uh, it can often make people very arrogant and proud. And to actually put others down and to exalt themselves over others to the fact where they'll become cruel. And it's, it's human nature. Which that experiment showed. And, um, well, as a believer, you have far more than any unbeliever in this world. By miles, you possess the kingdom of God. You're married to the king. You have God inside you. You're perfectly righteous. Before God, you are just forever. And the unbelievers all around you in a fallen world, they don't have any of that. Having more than all around you, would it produce in you or me arrogance and pride or compassion? Well, you know, that all depends. But there's a, there's a great thing that God has given us that is extremely helpful here. And that is we can give to others what we have. So we have this position with Christ, heaven itself eternal life, we can give that. When we give it, we don't lose any of it ourselves. When we give eternal life to others, through the gospel, of course, God's given it, but you know what I mean. When we give instruction and truth, when we give graciously and show people love and compassion, you're not any the less for it. You're far more than you started. So, we not only get to give it, but we actually get to give without losing anything. Now, compared to someone who had a whole bunch of stuff and couldn't give it to anybody, well, yeah, that's probably a, a far easier way of becoming prideful and arrogant and cruel. But when you know that you can give it to others, and that person in front of you who is an unbeliever, and maybe they're one of the worst, but they could be in the kingdom of God in a moment, it makes a big difference. So Christ sends us out into the world as witnesses, and every one of us, not just apostles and missionaries and pastors or evangelists, all of us are sent out into the world to be missions. And, uh, and so with that, we see in the Gospel of Matthew that we are extremely privileged and what that means in this age because we're in an age surrounded by people who are not. So we're going to start in Matthew 11, Matthew 11, 
Let's pray. Let's be grateful and thankful for God's Word, for this Gospel. It's going to show us some wonderful things. Uh, As always, the Word of God does. But of course, we have to be humble and reverent and, and ready to learn before we can learn. So with that, let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and for this truth, your gospel, for the good news that comes through Matthew. We understand, Father, that the gospels have have their differences and therefore they have different emphases. And so, Father, we're asking you to help us see the emphasis in Matthew, to see the truth in this particular book that you have inspired for all the ages to see. We are, we're thousands of years after Matthew wrote it and... We are uh, like learning it for the first time or perhaps uh, the 10th time. But whatever the case, Father, you always have something new for us in your word. We ask that through your spirit, our hearts would be enlightened to those new things and to also to reinforce the old if they are true. And so we ask, Father, through your spirit to enlighten our hearts. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So to organize a large gospel... Actually, they're all kind of large. I mean, Mark's the smallest, but it's still you know, it's 15, 16 chapters if you accept the end of it. Uh, Matthew's 28 chapters is a lot. It's the biggest of the Gospels, and therefore um, it's important to have it organized in our brains. And if we can do that, it's a good thing. So we're going we're gonna to try that. First off, before we start with 1-1, uh, Matthew 1-1, I mean, we're going to uh, try a couple of different ways in which to see this structure. Matthew is structured in various ways. The way that we're looking at right now is the five discourses. In Matthew, there are five long discourses. All of them end, every one of them end with the phrase, when Jesus had finished saying these words or these things. So, um, when Jesus had finished these words... Uh, is the end of five discourses. And, of course, the one in the middle is the one that matches exactly with the chiasm we saw on Sunday, which is Matthew chapter 13, and that is the discourse on the mystery of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus taught in seven parables. Uh, and we'll look at that today. But since uh, I thought for sure I could fit all of these in one class yesterday, but what an idiot I was. So uh, we only did two of them yesterday, and so here are the five. There's a Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5 through 7. In every one of these, there's a narrative that leads up to it. Um, And again, this isn't the entirety of the gospel, obviously. It's just the means by which we can structure it, see the structure of it. I mean, this is obvious that Matthew has structured these five discourses because they're not identical in the other gospels. Matthew has, the Sermon on the Mount is far longer in Matthew than it is in Luke, and Mark hardly has any of it, and so John doesn't. So Matthew has the Sermon on the Mount very expanded, and there's a reason for that. Uh, chapter 10 is this, the discourse on, on missions, or you know, he's gonna, he sends out his disciples to the various towns in Israel. He says, don't go to the Gentiles, just go to Israel. And uh, he gives them the power for miracles and casting out demons, and they go, and they have a a very successful uh, mission there, but also they're not fully accepted either. But the brunt of that is not the success of the disciples, but the fact that uh, in the age when the Messiah is going to present himself to Israel, he's sending out his disciples to go to places before he even goes. So just like John the Baptist went ahead of him, he's sending the disciples out ahead of him to these various towns. And then he would go to those towns and preach himself. Uh, the, the fact that they reject that, and right after this in, uh, in chapter 10 and chapter 11, John the Baptist is arrested. So the great evangelist is arrested and and. Matthew puts that particularly right after this sermon on being an evangelist. So he's got this sermon on evangelism. And, of course, he knows he's going to be rejected. So he has all this in mind for 
the whole church uh, who would be studying these words because we all become evangelists too. Uh, then uh, the parables are in chapter 13, which is the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. And then uh, who's the greatest in the kingdom? That parable, that sorry, not parable, but that discourse is on the love of we are to have. The members of the kingdom are to love one another. And that's what that's about. And then finally, the Olivet Discourse, which is, I'm coming back, be ready, pretty much. And so we go from, this is what the the quality, or this is what the disciples of the kingdom are like, that's the Sermon on the Mount, to all of you be ready for me to come back. And in the middle is, well, I offered the kingdom to Israel, they said no to me, I'm taking the offer off the table, but not forever. That's in, right in the middle. So what this provides for us is a, a real wonderful description of the members, which you and I are, of the kingdom. Our quality, our outreach, so we are to have the quality Sermon on the Mount, we're to be just like him. And we'll go through the Sermon on the Mount again for sure. And in that sermon, we see, what do we see? Uh, the quality of the members of the kingdom, what are we to be? How are we blessed? Uh, and blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Blessed are those who thirst and hunger for righteousness. Blessed are you who are meek, who are peacemakers, and so on. So how are we blessed? We show ourselves to the world as citizens of heaven. Our morality is the morality and ethics of heaven itself which includes the ethics of the law, but more. Our kindness, our devotion, our truthfulness, our love for others is to the quality that heaven is. That's what we are in the kingdom. Now, some will say, well, that's not for all of us. It totally is for all of us. We're gracious, forgiving, we pray, we're far above the entrapments of greed, we're anxious for nothing, we do not judge, we seek the fruits of righteousness, and we do what our Lord commands us, even when the world hurls the ocean at us. We stand firm. Sermon on the Mount. There you are. And I know you're all saying, oh, Pastor, I'm all of that, no problem. Work in progress. Our outreach is next. Our situation. The situation is, and I love this. This is the middle, Matthew 13. It's really the main point of the whole gospel. Or we should say the center point. Is that we're heirs of heaven, princes and princesses of heaven, of the kingdom of God. And we're in the kingdom of the enemy. We're in the kingdom of the world. It's God's world. But it's run by Satan, and there's fallen people, and there's evil, and there's sin. And everybody who wants, come on, why why can't people fix the world? What's wrong with all those politicians? What's wrong with all those leaders? What's wrong with Hamas? What's What's wrong with them? It's the same thing that's wrong with everybody. Sin is in this world. Christ did not promise us that this world would get better. He promised the opposite. Why are we shocked at this? I see angry Christians. They're, they're, they're angry. Why? Look, there is righteous anger. I don't know if any of us have ever had it. I know I haven't. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. I know the Bible says it's true, and I've never seen a lick of it. Um, you know, we are in a position, our position or our situation is one in which we are witnessing to a world of people who are, there's only one hope, and it ain't the government. There's only one hope, and it ain't economics. It is not psychology. It is not the promise of an earthly utopia that somehow comes from man. There's no such thing. And we have to tell them that. We have to show them that and tell them that. Because if we don't, we're the ones here to do that. That's our situation. We're members of a kingdom that has been postponed. But we have all the benefits of that kingdom See, we weren't left behind as this, geez, you know. We're not left behind at all. We're given all the blessings of the kingdom that are spiritual, and we're waiting for it. But with all the benefits that accrue from being born again in the Messiah, 
and yet in a fallen world. That's our situation. Our love for each other. In Matthew 18, it's very specific to the fact that we are, we love for all of us in the body of Christ, the love of the members for one another, because all of us are going to need a whole bunch of help. And instead of putting each other down and judging one another, which he deals with in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 18, we forgive one another. It's in Matthew 18 that Peter says, should I forgive my brother seven times? And Jesus says, no, Peter, seven times 70. And then he tells a parable about a man who was forgiven tens of millions of dollars. And then he found somebody who owed him five bucks and he wouldn't forgive him. So, love, absolute forgiveness. And then, as we're here, we know that we're stuck on earth. But we're alert to he's coming back. And in Matthew 24, Matthew 24 and 25, he says it multiple times. It's three times, I think he says it, one after another. None of you know when I'm coming back. So we're always looking. And why does he say that? He wants our eyes on heaven as well as on earth. Not all earth, because then you forget about heaven. Not all heaven, heaven, because then you forget about your work that's here on earth. But both. Look down, look up, look down, look up. Because you don't want to fall into a hole. So these are the members of the kingdom of heaven in the narrative of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, In Matthew 10, we find the mission discourse in which the disciples are sent out to the towns of Israel. And as we saw yesterday, they find a whole bunch of trouble. Um, Those who... Now, in, in each of these discourses, not those, this, in each of these discourses, there's a narrative that Matthew writes, that not necessarily, they're not chronological. It's Matthew is hand-picking certain events in Christ's life to set up his gospel so that he can preach or teach a certain message, a certain purpose. And the narratives that he puts in, you know, what's going on before Jesus teaches this sermon, are hand-picked by Matthew. They could be later in time, they could be earlier, it doesn't matter. Matthew is taking the things that he wants to take and he puts them next to these discourses. And before uh, Matthew 10 about the missions, Matthew puts in that there were a, a few individuals who went to Jesus and said, we want to follow you, but my father died. We want to follow you, but I, I've got a whole bunch of crops and I need to go check those out. I want to follow you, but... And Christ tells them, you need to follow me now. And what they had were excuses. And so if we're going to to be those who are sent out by Christ, you can't have excuses. If Christ's going to send you out to be that witness to the world, you can't say, well, Christ, I'm available from 2 to 4 on Wednesday. He's going to say, uh, that's not good enough. You need to be available to me all the time. I've got to go bury my father. Let him bury, let the dead bury themselves, he said. Come, follow me. But I've got a schedule. You can't interfere with my schedule, God. Um, yeah, I'm gonna. <laughs> if you're not gonna let me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do things to your schedule that are gonna make you understand that you're mine. And so yet, Matthew, though a gospel, of course, about the life of Jesus Christ, a whole great part of it is about us and our commitment to our king and our commitment to his kingdom. Uh, Those who did follow them, what's the promise? Uh, Trouble. Well, come on. Yeah, everybody who follows me gets into the boat. They get into the boat. The waves come, crash. Jesus is doing what in the boat? Sleeping. Don't go to sleep yet. But he's sleeping in the boat. Yeah, he's not troubled, is he? And then he says, when he sends them out, in Matthew 10, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst the wolves. But he tells them, be wise. Be innocent. Don't do what they do. Be innocent. Be pure. But also be wise. And all that wisdom that we need is in the scripture. I mean, when Christ says be wise, I think of Proverbs. I think of Job. There, there is your wisdom for every and any situation. 
So they're sent out, and then comes John the Baptist. Is you know Jesus said he's the greatest evangelist ever, and then look at Matthew eleven sixteen. He says, "For what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children." And say, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. John's the dirge. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's the flute that you did not dance. And who else was sent out? Well, it's not just John and Jesus, but the disciples. They were sent out in chapter 10. And so, what did they do? It didn't matter if it was John, if it was the disciples, or if it were Jesus. They did not listen. And at the end of the gospel, we find out that the kingdom is taken from you. You have not listened. We sent out. John came. I came. They went. My disciples went. And it didn't matter the sound of the song or the type of the song. In other words, it didn't matter who gave you the gospel, whether it was John suffering in the desert with a camel hair jacket or me eating and drinking with the disciples and tax collectors. It didn't matter to you. You just didn't listen. So that's the second discourse. And then the third is the mysteries of the kingdom. So go to Matthew uh, 13.10. The mysteries of the kingdom uh, is the fact that the kingdom would be postponed. Now, again, the chronology does not matter uh, with Matthew. He's not concerned. Matthew is not at all concerned with the order of events. What he's concerned about is presenting a truth to Jewish unbelievers about 30 years or so after the death of Christ. And so these Jewish believers are, Matthew's goal is to get them to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah King of Israel and that uh, the kingdom that all of us Jews expected has been postponed. And why has it been postponed? And Matthew makes that very clear. We'll see it here. So the kingdom's postponed, but the program continues. So the kingdom program is all right. Now this program from the time that here, from the time of Matthew 13 until his second coming, no one in the Old Testament knew anything about. And that's why it's called a mystery. We know it now. I mean, anybody who becomes a believer gets to know the mystery. It's no longer a mystery. But it was a mystery to the Old Testament saints. The fact that the Messiah would come and we wouldn't get the millennial reign, the kingdom on earth, it doesn't make any sense. All the prophets said it. All the prophets said the Messiah comes and that's the age of the Messiah. And the age of the Messiah is one of incredible abundance and blessing. And Israel is the center And the Messiah sits on David's throne and he rules forever. So, obviously, when Matthew tells them that Jesus is the Messiah, they're all going to say, well, where's his kingdom? The mystery is that the kingdom would be postponed. The mystery is that the blessings of the kingdom, the spiritual blessings, would be given to individuals before the kingdom even came to earth. That is a... No one ever... No one ever wrote of it or knew of it. And that is truly the church. We're recipients of the spiritual blessings of the kingdom. But we don't have the kingdom. It's not here. It's postponed. So the kingdom program continues. It has been taken away. Israel to Israel, to the very nation of Israel, to the very people that are descended from Abraham, who are believers, they are going to experience an earthly millennial kingdom with Christ when he returns. But until that time, any Jewish person who becomes a believer becomes a part of a church, which Jew or Gentile doesn't even matter. Not now. And that's another thing that Matthew has to get across their thick skulls. (laughs) Because he's the one who truly writes, in his gospel, he emphasizes Gentiles, though he's writing to Jews. But you can see why. He's trying to convince Jews 
who are seeing a church grow with Gentiles. We're talking about 60, 70 A.D. when he writes this. We know he writes before the destruction of the temple, so it's before 70. Somewhere around 60, there's a lot of Gentiles in the church, and Jews hate the Gentiles. It became a real issue in the early church. So Matthew describes now, in Matthew 13, a very, very large crowd that are around Jesus. And Jesus, therefore, we think probably for that reason the crowd is so big that he gets into a boat and he goes out a little ways onto the Sea of Galilee and he speaks to them. And that's the picture I pulled up. Maybe it helps. But, um, and then he begins with the parable of the sower. So he starts right off with the parable of the sower which is the parable that explains the rest, as he says. And we'll, we'll look all into this when we get there. And then the disciples ask him, why are you speaking to them in parables? So look at verse 10. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him shall more be given." And he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Right? This is one of those sayings that are confusing. If he doesn't have, how can what he has be taken away from him? But what do they have? Now, the the ones who have are the disciples who have believed upon him. And they're actually asking him, as we see in this chapter, for an explanation on these parables. And it says, uh, I think it's in um, Mark's gospel, that he explains them all. So they ask him about every parable. The others don't. They hear these parables and be like, what in the world is he talking about? Seeds and birds and thorns and thistles. Like, it doesn't make any sense. It sounds like he's telling kids stories. And they don't ask. So what do they have that will be taken from them? The offer of the kingdom. (laughs) They have that. That offer is given to them. They have it right now. At least they had it. And now, right at this point in Matthew, it's taken away. They had offered to them the kingdom. Same with the disciples, but more will be given to the disciples because they're going to accept it. They believe him to be the Messiah. They believe him to be the king of the Jews and the Son of God, and they get more. And boy, do they get more, just like we do. So whoever has, more shall be given. And whoever doesn't have, well, what he had, what he has, which is the offer of the kingdom, will be taken. So in Matthew 13, we have the parables of the mystery kingdom right before it. And again, we're, we're looking at what's around these discourses to kind of get us more into the structure of Matthew. He's re- he rejects his family right before this. And you say, why is this significant? Well, the offer of the kingdom is being taken away. And his family are of those who are yet to believe in him. Now, we don't know about Mary, but we know the brothers don't. His brothers, especially James, we know James becomes a believer after the resurrection of Christ. But um, his brothers in the other Gospels make fun of him. They, it's in John 7 that they, they actually wish upon him his death. So look at Matthew 12:46. While he was speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside. Notice how this is right before... Now, is this chronologically right before his teaching on the parables in Matthew 13? We have no idea. Uh, Matthew is not sticking to chronology. What Matthew is doing is setting up a structure. So this could have happened after. It could have happened before. But what Matthew wants us to see is that his mother and brothers were not really concerned about the will of the father as much as they were just wanting to talk to their their brother, their family member. So while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. How shocked were they when he said that? 
For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, lest we think that Jesus is telling us to cast our families aside, it's clear that Jesus here is saying that I do have a family. And what he's speaking of is an eternal family, a family that will what? Do the will of the Father. His disciples will. And it turns out that his mother will. They, it's not that he's casting them aside because they're family. Uh, obviously, he is not going out to speak to them because at this time uh, it is not prudent to do so. And it's perhaps very possible that they have not done the will of the Father yet. They have not believed in him yet. So, but yet still we go a little farther back to see this uh, a little clearer um, in Matthew twelve twenty-two. Go back to verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. And the crowds were amazed, saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? So here the crowds are like, wait a minute, is this, when they say son of David, they mean Messiah. Is this the Messiah? And the Pharisees, when they heard this, so very scared that the people of Israel would believe in him, said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And Beelzebul here is speaking of, it's another word for Satan. He casts out demons by the power of the devil, by the power of Satan. And Jesus states that this is an unforgivable sin. But he doesn't mean that they can't be saved. He's going to be judged for this sin, just like he's going to be judged for the sins of the whole world. What's unforgivable is that that generation will not have the kingdom offered to them anymore. It is unforgivable. They will, and Jerusalem will be destroyed. A lot of them will be too. The Romans are going to conquer this city and they're going to destroy it. And they're going to be a part, many here are going to be a part of that destruction. So, these scenes, the scene of this... He does what he does by the power of the devil. And then the family, who is really a part of that, what they represent is the Israel that doesn't believe upon him. And what's significant about that is that they're the Israel that doesn't believe upon him who are members of his family who he loves. Right? So there's a, there's a clear, in Matthew here, a dividing line If your mother doesn't believe in Christ, though you love her and you're a part of her and you're going to honor her, she is not a part of the kingdom. Same with anybody. It's only believers. It's Christ who's the door, not paternal love. That's not the door. It's Christ. And Matthew makes that super clear. So you do things by the devil... Jesus rejects his family, who represent Israel, and then Matthew puts in these parables that talk about this kingdom has been taken from you and it will be given to someone else. It's set up beautifully. And so hopefully for us we can remember this, at least a little, so that when we're going through the Gospels we can say, ah, yeah, yeah, here we are in 12, which is like a precursor to this mystery kingdom parable discourse, right? And keep, it actually helps us greatly to understand some things that at times before might have been like, you know, what is this doing here in the gospel? Some things seem to be random, but actually it turns out not a line here is random. It's all formulated by Matthew with his own thinking, inspired by God the Holy Spirit to put together a marvelous, marvelous document. After 13, Jesus goes to a Canaanite Gentile city and he heals a Gentile woman's daughter. And Matthew is the one who includes this and it's put here. This is Canaanite woman who's, uh, who's over there lives in Tyre and Sidon and... Um, Jesus calls her a dog. Basically, he says, I came here for the children of Israel. I don't give the food of the children to dogs. And she said, yeah, but she gives scraps to the dogs, don't you? And so in Matthew's gospel, two 
people are commended for their faith and they're both Gentiles. Her and the centurion. They're, they're not Jews. And that's done on purpose because he wants the Jews to see the Jews after, you know, 20, 30 years after the death of Christ. Matthew wants that unbelieving Jews to see at that time that, yeah, your Messiah extended his hand to the Gentiles. And Matthew is by far, of all the gospel writers, the one who plucks out and uh, references Old Testament prophecy more than anybody. And he's going to pluck those out as well because there's prophecy about the inclusion of the Gentiles. All right. There's a lot of talking for that one. Matthew 18. Go to Matthew 18. This is the fourth. This one and one more. So you got the Sermon on the Mount, the missions, missionaries, the parables of the mystery of the kingdom, and now you have, well, technically, who's the greatest? And, uh, you know, and this is so interesting, really, because this is one of those things that only God could do and actually make it make sense to sheeples like us. Is that, you know, in this world, if you're the greatest, you're the strongest, you're the smartest, you're the richest, you're the most powerful, uh, whatever, you know, you're the est of whatever is the measure. For him, the greatest in the kingdom is the one who, in humility, behaves like a child and loves others. And, and therefore, you're the least. And he's, he will say this, and it's absolutely paradoxical to the human mind, even to our own minds. Because we think, still think rationally and logically that for the least to be the greatest doesn't still make any sense. But in his kingdom, which is upside down to the, this world's kingdom, that's who the greatest is. And therefore, now, in the kingdom of heaven, who doesn't do this? Right? When we're all in heaven, who's proud and arrogant and who's is there anyone among us who isn't an absolute servant of all the rest not a one they wouldn't be in heaven and no more sin in heaven our sin natures are gone we're in resurrection bodies you could have been if you're a believer you would have been a prideful butthead here down on earth but you're going to be a humble servant in heaven and therefore in heaven who's the greatest I mean, it's truly the only one utopia that there is. And almost communist, really. We are truly equal, though we're all completely individual. There is no greatest. (laughs) But Christ. Christ is the only one. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So this is how this starts off. We wouldn't go back. I don't see anything in chapter 17 that sets this up other than the question in 18.1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, some, you know, in our day and age, we say, well, what did children mean to us? And we have to be careful because this is an Eastern culture in the first century, and for them, a child is the lowest. It has no rights. In our day and age, children are given way too many rights, you know. Uh, he doesn't mean stupid. He doesn't mean that, even though they are. So, oh, as Alan and I were talking about all these people who are protesting against Israel on college campuses, we all shake our heads. They're all dumb kids. They haven't... Their knowledge of the world and life and history would not fit in a th- would fit in a thimble. I should say uh, they don't know anything. I, I just laugh them off. They're just dumb. That's not what he means here. When he says in this culture, when he pulls a child to himself, he's pulling to himself the lowest of the low, just in position. Unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And again, is this child humble? 
I don't know, what child is? I mean, he would have had to have grabbed an exceptional child because they're not. Right? What does he mean? That you see yourself as the low. Not like, you know, I'm a bit smarter than the rest of them, at least some of them, or I'm a bit better than or stronger than or more spiritual than. You are the bottom. That's it. And, and you know, it's a great place to be. <laughs> I laughed. Just be an idiot. No, no one expects anything of you. Set the bar low. That's not what I mean at all. Um, you're not what your flesh wants you to think that you are. None of us are. What are we? I mean, we don't even know yet. <laughs> I mean, I think when we're glorified in our resurrection bodies, we'll finally see for the first time what a a speck of dirt we were on earth. Anything that we have that is of any value comes from him. So when he says this, humble as a child means put yourself on the bottom. Hence, consider one another as more important than yourself. Was that not Paul's command? In Philippians 2, to have this mind in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. So, humble yourself. And then he says, verse 5, And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So, when you, so here's another believer who you know is the lowest of the low. You're the lowest of the low. If you receive them in his name, you receive him. And that's something to, that's something to remember. We must remember it. But whoever causes one of these little ones to be, who believe in me to stumble, and again, yeah, if child abuse is a horrible thing, and and it should, I would prefer all child abusers to have a millstone around their neck and thrown into the river, I guess. But it's, you know, again, he's speaking of the believer who is, who knows, who they are. If you cause them to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. So, not only do I know that I'm on the bottom rung, but I do not want, or nor will I cause, any other believer to stumble. I will not put a stumbling block in front of their way. How many ways can we do that? Verbally, mentally, you don't even have to say the word. You could be a stumbling block to someone. Judging them, not praying for them, not giving, not, not serving. Saying to God, you know, my, my window of serving is closing up here. I only serve from 2 to 4 on Tuesdays and Thursdays, you know. So if you want somebody to serve, you better get me in, in position during those times. Or, see, because you could not do for someone and be a stumbling block. Because they needed your help. Or you could have helped them to take those steps a bit easier in their own spiritual walk, but you didn't. Nor did I. I do this too. And so here is what these are. In all of these discourses, the quality of the member of the kingdom, the witness of the member of the kingdom, the place in a fallen world in which we're not in heaven yet, member of the kingdom. There, and by the way, that means we're going to suffer. And now, the love that we have for one another in the, in the kingdom. And man, what love is this? Further on in this, we have the 99 are left, and you go out and get the one. But wait a minute, he's, he's a loser. Why should I go get him? I know I know a guy a guy who ministers to in a in a Christian addiction program who um, he tells everybody in his program call me anytime day or night and I'll be there and this is not words he means it because I, I I've gotten to know him and, and he does it any anywhere anytime I will pick up the phone and he says and then he, he said to this this group of guys he said. Uh, I I may call if I have your number I may call you. 
just to see how you're doing. And, um, you know, there's people out there. And what is that? I think of that. When I hear him talk, to, I say, well, geez, you know. What about, what if you're having dinner or you're with your family? <laughs> it's a really like I'm saying to God, not right now. Can you see I'm busy? Can you see I'm doing something? And God's, like, God's really saying to us, who's more important? We'll see, what's in, in chapter 10 of Matthew is, if you love your mother, father, blood, and more than me, are you worthy of me? Oh, it's amazing here what God is doing for us. And telling us to do. So you leave the 99 and go get the 1. That's here in this chapter. You seek your brother's repentance for his sake. If you know of your brother, this is not interfering in their lives, but if you know your brother is sinfully being led away from God, go and talk to them, is what Jesus says. And therefore, you have to love your brother. And you also have to say, well, you know, he's more important than me. So I'm going to go get him if I can. And then at the end of the chapter is forgive everyone of all things. How many times should I forgive my brother? 490 times if he sins against you in a day. And then he tells the parable of the man who's forgiven of gobs of money and won't forgive one who owes him a couple bucks. Now, such love. Does this come? Now, we just heard about it. Right? I'm sure you're probably a little motivated like I am. Is it just going to come natural now? As soon as we walk out these doors this afternoon, we're going to be like, yeah, that's it, man. I've hit it. I've hit the, the Christ love of my, in my life. It'll never go away. No. And Matthew does this. Now, notice what he does here on purpose. Look at Matthew 19:13. Then some children, please notice children. What did we just learn? What did Christ say? He pulled a child on his lap. He said, if you become like one of these, right? Some children were brought to him so that he may lay hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. And, you know, it's like, um, did you not just hear what I just said? If you become like one of these little children, you can't enter into the kingdom. Unless you do, you can't enter into the kingdom of God. Oh, yes, Jesus, I heard you. Now here come a troop of kids who their moms want Jesus, the Messiah, to lay their hands on to give them a blessing. I mean, wouldn't you? Hey, if the Messiah was around in my time and I wanted my kids to be blessed, yeah, sure. I mean, it'd be... A, a dream come true, really. And, and the disciples are like, send these things away. We hate kids. Now, this may have happened before or after. Again, chronology in Matthew doesn't really matter all that much. What matters is, is that Matthew puts it here on purpose. It's right after 18, right after become like a child, we see the disciples sending the children away. And what does this tell us? This is not going to come naturally, folks. Even though you have heard the teaching, even though you believe the teaching, even though you know you're wholeheartedly like, yeah, I know what Christ has called me to do and I need to love the lowest of the low with his love. I have to do it. You are still going to have to fight your flesh and strive to do it. Jesus said to them, but Jesus said in verse 14, Let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I can just imagine the disciples saying, Hey, that sounds familiar. The kingdom of heaven belongs to children. Didn't he just say that? And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Obedience demands a willful act of submission. Right? In the past, I used to think that if I study enough doctrine, that the, the desire for obedience would just come over me. I waited a long time for that to happen. And finally, God said, and I, I wholeheartedly believe this, not, not just from my own experience, but from the Scripture, that you've got to go for it. You've got to reach ahead, as Paul states. You've got to be diligent. You've got to grope. You've got to go. You've got to truly put your heart. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling means you've got to put your heart, mind, and soul into it. Your flesh is going to fight you. 
Your flesh will convince you that being a biblical scholar is just good enough. It's great, in fact. You're a lot smarter and know a lot more doctrine than the other people. But then there's someone who's sitting at home reading their King James Bible and they're doing more for the kingdom of God than we are. It shouldn't be. We've got to strive for it. Those who heard the truth from Jesus about principles of truth didn't automatically obey them. Obedience demands a willful act of submission. Whether we feel like it or not, we've got to do it. I don't care if you're born again a day. Do what you know that you're supposed to do. Fake it if you must. Because it's in doing that you will discover the truth behind the truth. All right, last one. And a photo finish again. Matthew 24, 25. This is the Olivet. So if you go to Matthew 24, 3. And we can, we can sum this up in just a few minutes. The Olivet Discourse is about what's going to happen in the future. It's appropriate that this is at the end. The end of the discourses, the last one is, now the kingdom has been completely taken off the table. The, uh, sorry, the offer of the kingdom to that generation is taken off the table back in Matthew 13. And now he's going to speak to the disciples concerning this and the setup for this or what comes before this. Well, actually, not before, but the setup is the three questions the disciples ask him in Matthew 24, 3. They're on a Mount of Olives. That's why it's called the Olivet. It just means that it was given on the Mount of Olives. And the disciples come. He was sitting on the Mount of Olives, verse 3, and the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things happen? That's the first question. And what will be the sign of your coming? That's the second question. And the end of the age? Question three. He doesn't answer them in order. Go figure. Jesus, you know, he answers questions the way he wants. I love that he does that. Uh, when will these things happen? It's right after he says the temple is going to be destroyed completely. Why not one stone upon the other? So that's what they ask. Um, he's going to tell them about what to expect as the time draws near. Uh, He's going to tell them repeatedly that you do not know when I'm coming back and no one knows the day or the hour. And then he's going to tell them to be in parables of the ten virgins. Uh, First uh, first one's the the faithful servant and then the ten virgins and then the parable of the talents. He's going to tell them to be alert and be ready and while I'm gone, invest. In other words, be obedient. So while I'm gone, you don't know when I'm coming, but look for me. Be alert, be ready for me, and do my will. Just before this are seven woes given to the Pharisees by Jesus. The seven woes to the religious leaders. And then he gives them three parables. The parable of the two sons. Uh, one says, I won't go into the vineyard. The father asked both of them to go. One says, I won't go, but changes his mind and goes. The other one said, I'll go, but he doesn't go. And he just says, who did the will of his father? And it's the one who, even though he said, I won't go, he went. Again, words, study, without doing, without going to the Lord, nothing. He doesn't care about that. Now, we need the study to do the doing, but if we do the study without the doing, the Lord's like, you did nothing. Then the parable of the vineyard owner. The vineyard owner uh, leases out his vineyard, then he sends his slaves to get the, the uh, payment or the, the profit, and they kill them. He sends more slaves, they kill them. He says, I'll send my son, they'll honor him, they kill him. And he says, the kingdom's going to be taken away from you. And then the wedding feast. The wedding feast, he sends out the invitation to everybody. And they all like, eh, we're too busy. And then they're judged terribly. And then he says, send, go out to the highways and byways. Go get as many as you can. Fill up my house. And the highways and byways, here we are. We were the bums living under the bridge that got called and now we're members of the kingdom. So all of that, is pointing to all of that 
the kingdom's being taken from you. Right? So this is how Matthew ends. If there, anybody reads his gospel, it was written to Jews, but now we, it's, it's just as meaningful to us. Why was the kingdom taken off the table? The offer to that generation. They rejected him. The invitations were sent out. They said no. He said, go work in the vineyard. They said, sure, but they didn't go. I sent those to you to give me the fruit of what I have given you, what I have planted in you. Israel, I have planted in you. You're my vineyard. Give me the fruit, which is worship. They said, no, I'll send you my son. We'll kill him. No. I'm taking the kingdom away. Forever? No. So in this last discourse, the Olivet, he says to us, all of you who are going to be stuck here now until I come back, literally, you're stuck. You're stuck in a world where everybody's going to keep saying no. Where everybody, to your own witness, they're going to say no. They're going to persecute you. They're going to want to kill you. It's going to go on and on and on. When is everything going to go right? Never. Not until I come back. So until then, what are you to do? Fix the world? Please, dummy, no. Be obedient. Be ready. And watch for me. Because I'm coming. Be obedient, be ready, and watch for me. Right? What a gospel. So awesome. Now, Usually on these discourses, there's something on the other end of it that Matthew pops in. And what I saw here is I'm going through it. I'm like, well, Matthew 26, at the, you know, as we get into 26, that's it. That's the passion. That's where Jesus goes to Jerusalem and, and it comes to a head. It comes to an end. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, I don't. How does that relate to the Olivet? I don't. I don't know. And then I thought. Oh, right. There is something here. Because, God, because Christ changes something. Um, if you go to Matthew 26, 27, and this is for us. While we're stuck here waiting for him, because the kingdom has been postponed, we're not to celebrate the Passover. Now, there are some Messianic uh, Christians who do. I, they, I, I'm in hearty... Whatever they want to do, I'm I'm all for it. They they don't celebrate it in the way that you know they're expecting the Messiah. They they celebrate it as a cultural thing. But what Christ did at the Last Supper, which comes after this, is he took the Passover off the table, which makes sense because if he fulfilled the law and he took the offer of the kingdom off the table to that generation, he's going to take the Passover off the table. But he didn't take it away completely. He simplified it to two things, the bread and the cup. And notice what he says about the cup. He says, verse 27, The bread is my body which is given for you. Drink from this, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Now, the word covenant, when Matthew's writing to Jews, this word, this is their word, you know. And he says, the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Wow. Like So the kingdom's not gone. No. There's going to come a day where you're going to sit and drink wine with me in the kingdom. But until then, I've given you Not the Passover, but this. We call the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Communion. Eucharist, which eucharisteo means to give thanks. The Eucharist, which is we're going to celebrate and always remember that he gave his body for us and that he gave his life for us. And, And by doing so and dying for our sins, he is handed to you and me who are heirs of the kingdom the new covenant. All of it, no. But a great, the, the spiritual blessings of the new covenant, he gives that to those who are left behind. So be ready. Be obedient. Be ready. Be alert. 
and remember me. And then Matthew wraps up his gospel. What a plan. <laughs> right? Who could come up with such a thing other than God? And for us, you know, we have to, do you know where you are, why you're here, who you are? I ask that a lot. But in light of Matthew's gospel, this postponed kingdom, who am I? What world am I in? What am I expected to do? And how does all of that glorify my king? And, you know, with, just with Matthew's gospel, we can answer all those questions. Yeah. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and your grace. Thank you for this gospel and for revealing and relating to us the truth about the life of our Lord and the impact of that life has on all history, past, present, and future. May we be able to see ourselves in the future that, sorry, well, yes, in the future.